0: First night, we talked about freedom from demonic influence. Last night, we talked about partnering with the angelic realm. And today, we're going to talk about living on the other side of the cross or how to maintain, walk in, and promote freedom in not only just your life, but the life of other people as well. Um, I had a a great question uh, this morning. We had a discussion at uh, Pastor Van's house around the table about people said uh, somebody had a question about the first night. So what about the the instance where Jesus uh, cast a demon out of a young man that the disciples couldn't cast a demon out of, and he says to them, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Jesus is trying to promote in us a lifestyle that's not just based upon our reaction to evil. Jesus habitually developed, as an example to us, a lifestyle of intimacy with the Father. Constantly developing intimacy with the Father. You know, we don't read specifically about moments where Jesus says, I'm going fasting now. We know that he got a, alone a, away with, uh, with his Father to just spend time cultivating that relationship of intimacy. And uh, we can assume that that's a time of prayer, that's conversation with God, that's fasting. It's a time of where you just take in direct the entirety of your appetite onto just an awareness of the, the king and his kingdom that's the nature of an intimate relationship with God that empowers you when you do encounter a a need for a breakthrough. Most of the time, and I think the disciples were probably in this boat, and many Christians are as well, we don't have a lifestyle of prayer. We don't have a lifestyle of just intimacy and communion with God. We don't direct the fullness of our appetites toward the things of his presence on a consistent basis until we have a need. In other words, we live spiritually reacting to darkness. So then darkness begins to dictate the intimacy that you have with God. So it's like this. I haven't prayed in months, but all of a sudden now my kid's in the hospital, and boom, I'm on my knees like mad crazy. So when Jesus looks at the disciples and casts out this demon out of this kid and says, look, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, he doesn't pray and fast in that moment. Prior to that, he had cultivated such a lifestyle of intimacy that he was fully empowered to be able to see breakthrough when he encountered a problem. And that's what he's doing in us. He's promoting an ongoing lifestyle of intimacy with God so that you never encounter a problem that you are not already equipped to step into a breakthrough for. Does that make sense? All right. So that's the deal. It's it's not that the disciples didn't have the ability to cast it out. It's not like that they had like a junior Holy Spirit or they had like a... Level, level one, you know, power. It, it's that God is not going to promote any lifestyle that uh, that is purely a spiritual or intimate relationship with God, purely based upon or fueled by your reaction to the demonic. That's not the way this thing works. We develop that lifestyle in the secret place. We develop that lifestyle when things are going awesome. We consistently develop that lifestyle never as a reaction to evil because otherwise your spirituality becomes a testimony to the power of the devil's work in your life as opposed to your love for God. And that's just never to be the point. So, um, uh, yeah, that's how that works. Okay, a couple of things. Um, I I just I'm so blessed by this team. Where's Luke at? Luke's probably in the back, he's hanging out in the green room, eating M Ms and drinking sparkling mineral water. All right. You <laughs> talk about him because he's not in the room. Look at that! There he shows up. Um, <clears throat> Luke, I had this uh, sense last night while I was talking to you. We were visiting over at uh, Van Lori's house last night. I had the sense last night while I was talking to you. Every now and then I, I run into people that remind me of my dad and and that carry uh, an appetite for the miraculous in a way that attracts the supernatural. And I feel like you stepped into a marriage six months ago and, and you're going to attract that that supernatural element on on an incredible level, because you partnered with a covenant partner that 's also going after the exact same thing, and as I walked by the, the table back there, um, i just I saw a copy of my dad 's book, and uh, one of these twenty four hour things I just wanted to give that to you as a wedding present so be blessed as a, as a man. my uh, my dad uh, dad 's ministry was so it was so crazy. People ask me, I love it when people ask me questions about my dad. He was such a, an interesting character, and he had this relationship with God where he would wake up from a dream and say, Oh, we got to do this right now. Like one time he wakes up and we were living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he says, We got to go to Tampa right now. <laughs> right now, mom says. So they uh, emptied the bank account and bought three one way tickets to Tampa, Florida. This is back before 9 11. You guys remember back in the day when you could like walk all the way up to the gate and welcome people off the plane, right? Yeah, so that was back in this day. And so one-way tickets to Tampa, and now we're sitting in the Tampa airport having no idea why we're there. And we sit on a bench because this is as far as God has brought them. I remember just as a kid sitting there, I'm just watching, like, going, what are we doing? What's happening right now? And not too long, here comes this guy, and he's walking through the airport like this, and he walks up to my dad and says, are you a minister? My dad says, are you looking for a revival? <laughs> right. Check this out. This this was a pastor, he says, I'm in my office this morning and I'm seeking God. And I said, God send a revival to our church. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I have, he's at the airport, go find him. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It was my dad's lifestyle. It was his relationship with God. It was, okay, so look, if you read my dad's book, Luke or anybody else who got it, if you read it and you find yourself like off in the middle of Mexico City somewhere for no repair, don't call me up and ask me. You got to know that you're hearing from God. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm still to this day cultivating that, that understanding of the voice of God that my dad carried and walked in. Um, not everything, you know, ended great um, for him though. He, uh, uh, he was in Germany one time. I didn't find out this story until years, years later, and I ran into one of uh, the people that was uh, alumni with him in uh, uh, the college he went to. And he says, your dad took us to Germany one time to go see the Passion Play. And there were six of us there. And uh, as was his custom, every Sunday, no matter where we were, we went to church. And he said, and this was a German church, and everything was in German. A lot of stand up, sit down and kneel. And and we said, Henry, what do we do? And he says, let's just do whatever this guy does. We're sitting in this pew. Just, let's just do whatever this guy does. And of course, the sermon drones on. These guys are dozing off. And, and pretty soon, this guy stands up. And so dad and his five friends stand up. Here they are, all standing. And this guy turns and punches at my dad. And now the ushers come. And, and they're grabbing my dad and his friends. And they're pulling him out of the building. And there's a fight going on. And people are yelling. And dad says, what's happening? What's going on? What did we do? And the usher says, He gets him out of the church. He says, you're not German? He says, no. He says, you don't speak German? He says, no. We're from America. And the guy starts laughing. and says, oh, they were doing a baby dedication. They asked the father to stand. So. (laughs) So. Yeah. Which apparently doesn't go over well in Germany. So, <laughs> so that was Dad. Uh, one of the most radical story I experienced with Mom and Dad was he wakes up one morning and says, God told us we're supposed to go to Hawaii. And, uh, and so he does. They, they, they emptied, they, all the money they had in the bank was just enough to get three one-way tickets to Honolulu. And so uh, we find ourselves in Honolulu standing downtown somehow dad gets a ride from the airport now we've got no money and uh, listen you've got to know you've heard from God and just understand this you can't just run a hunch here. you've got to know you've heard from God dad's standing downtown suitcases looking around sun's going down and we have no place to stay and we have no money here we are homeless in Honolulu not bad but not ideally dad runs across the street and he grabs a hold of this guy out of the crowd, and he simply says, "You have a place for us to live." And the guy said, "Wasn't well, that interesting?" I own an apartment complex right over here. We just have one come available. He says a long waiting list for it, but well, since you're here and I've got the keys, might as well take it. So it's going to cost you 150 bucks for the week, and and uh, uh, I'll come by tomorrow and pick up uh, pick up the. How long do you want to stay, Dad? So at least a week. So come by tomorrow and get the uh, get the rent. And so. Uh, uh, it's a long time ago. And so uh, uh, dad takes the, the keys, and, uh, and here we go, and we check in to this essential, essentially a hotel room. <clears throat> but it's a block off the beach and, you know, right there. And uh, now we've got no money, but we've got a place to stay for the night. And dad says, um, God says we're supposed to celebrate. We're children of the king. So I ask somebody, what's the best restaurant on the beach? So share it in Waikiki at the time. And so dad goes, that's where we're going. So we go to the Sheraton Waikiki and sits down, orders a full meal. No money. Again, you've got to know you've heard from God, right? <laughs> I don't recommend this, <laughs> right? And uh, at the end of the meal, mom gets a little nervous, and so she gets up and excuses herself to go to the restroom. But my dad would just sit there, and he'd praise God. Hallelujah to Jesus. Praise the Lord. And uh, all of a sudden, the waiter comes up to him and says, Sir, just want to let you know. Your meal's been taken care of tonight, and someone in the restaurant asked me to give this to you anonymously, and hands my dad uh, a $50 bill. He goes out of the restaurant, hallelujah, Right? walks out of the restaurant, and meets my mom, who's just in tears, says, I go into the restroom, and this woman walks up to me and said, the Lord just spoke to me, and said, I'm supposed to give this to you, and hands her a $100 bill. (laughs) Free meal, luxury meal, and enough money to pay the rent. So the following morning, dad goes, let's go to the beach. So we go to the beach, and dad ends up witnessing to a bunch of people, runs into a pastor, and we spent eight months in Hawaii doing ministry over there, and, uh, and never lacked a single thing, and uh, pretty soon really felt like it was time to go home. And so on the plane ride home, my mom, sitting there, begins to weep and says to my dad, look, and they gave away so much. Dad just gave stuff away. If somebody handed him $1,000. He'd look for somebody must need it more than I do. He was just that mission mindset kind of a guy. And he just lived to give. But all of the money that they had accumulated and collected over there, the money they hadn't given away but, but had, had, had hung on to, was exactly to the dollar amount, the amount of money that they had right before they left. They had that much money in their hands, on the way home. So when we got back to Tulsa, Oklahoma and got off the plane, it was as if they never went anywhere. <clears throat> and that's just the way he lived. And so, just, you know, that's, that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today is is living on the other side of the cross. How do you walk in freedom in this thing of the finished work of the cross? We you got your Bibles today, turn to Psalm chapter 22. I'm going to try to run through this relatively briefly today. Oh, by the way, if you picked up that red USB, I mentioned that there's notes, the angel notes on there, but I just realized last night somebody came up and said those notes aren't on there. What I'm going to do is give those to Pastor Van. If you've got that red USB, you can get those from him, or you can email me directly at billvanderbush at gmail.com. And that will come to me, and uh, my assistant Hannah will take care of sending those to you. So make sure that you get... Um, get those. Awesome. Psalm chapter 22 is the beginning of what Bible scholars will tell you is a trilogy. It's a prophetic trilogy of psalms. David, not generally considered to be a prophet, is incredibly prophetic though. And he's writing things that don't make a lot of sense in his lifetime. Some things he writes make no sense to him at all. And Psalm 22 is one of those, which is why we know that it's deeply prophetic. And it begins with this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know those words, but typically we don't attribute them to David. who was most famous for saying that? Jesus on the cross. So because Jesus said this on the cross, we often have, um, have come up with this theology that the father turned his back on the son on the cross. We've written hymns and poetry about it. Preached tons of messages about it, and we love that because it's it's very comforting to know that Jesus can identify with our deepest moment of rejection. And that's true, he can. But that's not what was happening on the cross. It's really important that you understand that the Father did not turn his back on the Son on the cross. We know this because of a couple of things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. On the cross, the Father and the Son were not at cross purposes. It's not that Jesus was coming to God going, oh, please don't hurt them, let me take their place. That's not, the, that's not what's going on here. The lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world, so God in Christ had already provided a solution before the problem ever presented itself. He wasn't living in reaction to our fall. He already provided salvation for us. That's the beauty of the cross. So it's not that there was a dysfunction within the Godhead here where the Father and the Son were arguing over your redemption. Father, Spirit, and Son have always been in harmony over your reconciliation. It's important that you know this, otherwise you can walk through your entire Christian life believing that Jesus came to rescue you from God or that Jesus came to try to change God's mind about you or that God was ready to just take you out, but thank God for Jesus, he came in, and, and then what ends up happening is you have this love for Jesus, but never have a, a sense of a trust for the Father, right? So this is really a big deal that you catch that the Father and the Son were absolutely in harmony. Second Corinthians five tells us this, but even more than that, what Jesus is doing on the cross is he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every Jew standing there at the base of the cross would have known what he was doing. He's quoting Psalm 22, one. If you're a good Jew, you know the psalms by heart. You've had these psalms for hundreds of years. They've been passed down to you in tradition. And it's like a pop song. If you quote the first line of it, everybody else can sing the rest. And as you quote the first line of Psalm 22.1, every Jew standing at the foot of the cross is thinking, why is he quoting Psalm 22.1? Then they think through the psalm, the lyrics of the song. Some of those lyrics go like this. They've pierced my hands and my feet, and for my garment they cast lots. David could have never known what he was talking about. There was no precedent for that. He never witnessed anything like that, seen anything like that, or experienced anything like that. Why is he feeling the need to write that? Because hundreds of years later, at the appropriate moment, Jesus is going to quote Psalm 22, 1, and everybody standing there is looking, going, through the lyrics of the psalm, they begin to realize, this is exactly what's happening right in front of me right now. Psalm 22 is a picture of the cross. In Psalm 22, verse 24, it's a very important verse, says, he has not turned his face from me or he has not turned his back from me. Catch this. See what it says. He has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He hasn't turned his face from me. He hasn't turned his back on me and when I cry out to him, he answers. The difference between Psalm 22, 1 and Psalm 22:24 is a shift in Perspective. And this is what we can identify with the most. There is a, listen to what I'm about to say. There is a big difference between feeling forsaken and being forsaken. Right? And what Psalm 22 and the message of the cross demonstrates is this. It doesn't matter whether you feel forsaken of God as long as you realize you never are forsaken right? We've all felt this place of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, what is happening? God, do you... it's Jesus in the boat and he's sleeping. You guys, remember this? Jesus in the boat and he's sleeping. Everybody's heard this story and the disciples are up and they're, they're, they're scared to death because they're going to drown, right? They feel like the wind and the waves are going to take him over. And, and it's often taught that they go and ask Jesus to get up and calm the wind and the waves. They don't. Read the story very carefully. This is what they say. Don't you care that we're dying? It's essentially, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, do you not care that we're perishing? What are they doing? They're questioning his love for them. They're questioning whether or not they can even trust him. Why are you sleeping? And he gets up and he rebukes them for their lack of faith, and then he calms the wind in the waves, right? Now, here's the thing. We often believe that he rebuked them because they didn't calm the wind in the waves. You had the faith to do it. You could have, okay, on one hand, they do have that ability But there's no precedent for that, so they didn't even know they could do it. And I don't believe that Jesus would rebuke them for something that they didn't even know they could do. I think when he was rebuking them for their lack of faith, he was saying something totally different. Jesus models this lifestyle of just doing what he sees the Father doing. In other words, he's living in surrendered obedience to align himself completely with what the Father's doing. Well, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what were the disciples supposed to do? The act of faith would have been not to operate out of their own initiative or out of their own desire or contrary to what he's doing, but their act of faith would have been, let's just do what he's doing. I don't think the point was calming the wind and the waves. I think Jesus was trying to see whether or not confronted with the circumstances of life, if they could see a contrast to the peace that he was living in and align themselves with that peace rather than let the circumstances of life bring them into partnership with fear. Let me make it really simple. Jesus was sleeping. They should have gone and laid down next to Jesus. Because it's in aligning yourself With the rest of God, that you find yourself empowered to calm the wind and the waves. Jesus is sleeping because there's no storm inside of him. You have authority over any storm you can sleep in. So he's rebuking them for their lack of faith, not that they didn't calm the wind and the waves, but that they were doing something contrary to what he was doing. There's a difference between feeling forsaken and being forsaken. I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like this is going to overtake me. Why are you sleeping? And Jesus is asking, why aren't you coming down and laying down with me? Why aren't you doing what I'm doing? From Psalm 22.1 to Psalm 22.24, the writer goes through this metamorphosis of perspective where he begins by feeling forsaken. And by the time he gets to verse 24, he realizes, I'm not forsaken. I just thought I was. And every one of us can identify with that. Now, if you really want to get crazy about the totality of the cross, you can read the last five verses of Psalm 22 and begin to see things like uh, posterity will serve him, nations will, will come to him it will be recounted to a people that haven't even been born. And it finishes with this phrase, that he has done it. First words of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Last words of Christ on the cross, it is finished. Psalm 22 is a prophetic picture in graphic detail of everything that the cross accomplished. And the prophetic picture continues with the finished walk of the finished work. Do you ever think of Psalm 23 as more than just happy poetry? It's way more than that. It's just as prophetic as Psalm 22. And I'll show you if you want to see it but once you see it, you can't unsee it. (laughs) Psalm 23, verse one, the Lord is my? Everybody knows this. You've been to Sunday school one time, supernaturally. Something of this psalm just gets embedded in you. You read it once, it just gets stuck and you never get it out of your system. I don't know what it is, except that God is trying to ignite within us the sense that there's something really supernatural about this word. And I think what God showed David following this graphic prophetic picture of the cross is how you and I, as New Covenant, New Testament believers, it's a roadmap for our life on the other side of the cross. This is going to be a roadmap I'm going to call the finished walk of the finished work. And it's just so much fun. I love it. It makes me giddy happy. I think I'm going to write a book about this. It starts out with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In that place that I'm surrendered in obedience... To the leading of the shepherd, I lack in nothing. We've talked about that a lot the last two days. But then he starts out the walk like this. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Makes me to lie down. What's your name? Andrew, Andrew, come here. Hop up here real quick. Let's say Andrew is beginning this walk of the finished work. All right, Andrew's like, just come into the the grace of God. He's accepted Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's like, first thing every Christian wants to know, what do I do? Get me to work. I want to do something, be productive and fruitful for the kingdom of God. And this is what you hear God say. Lie down. Lie down. It's okay, Andrew, you can do this on your own, or I can make you to lie down in green pastures. Come on. there we go. Let's go. Come on. Yeah, yeah, you're going to go ahead. There we go. Just like that. Excellent. Fantastic this is the way you begin the finished work you begin in rest everybody say the word rest Rest. that's it this is the posture that you start with well maybe god you don't understand how things work in this life see i work and then rest becomes the reward for the work that i have done no that's not the way this works in the gospel, in the finished work of the cross, you begin from a posture of rest. Always. You begin with rest. So uncomfortable. How can I be productive while I'm just lounging? I don't, I don't get this. I'll even sit here for a second. This, this is how you and I begin a lifestyle of reliance and trust and obedience and surrender that ultimately bears fruit because when I become fruit-bearing from a posture of rest, it produces no pride in me, pure gratitude because I can't take credit for something I didn't do. That's the beauty of beginning in rest is that you can't point to your work and say, look what I did. When fruit begins to just be an organic overflow of a life of surrendered rest, then you're just like, thank you, Jesus. You made me look like a genius, but I can't take credit for any of this. Thanks, man. All right, give me a hand. Good job. Whew. So step one, you begin in... Awesome. Now we don't just stay and rest. Finally, you get up and it says, "He leads me beside still waters." Jesus has an interesting relationship with water. He either walks on it or turns it to wine. It's fascinating how that works. <laughs> Jesus' very first miracle, by the way, in John chapter two, he goes to this wedding at Cana. You guys remember this? And uh, and, and they've run out of wine, not because they poured it all out on the ground. All right, understand. Jesus' very first miracle is when his mom demands that he make more wine for a group of people who have already emptied everything they've got. You can almost see Jesus' reluctance like, Mom, you don't understand. 2,000 years from now, there's going to be entire groups of like Christians that are debating about this. This is going to be, oh, it's so much controversy. It's just going to, okay, fine, we'll go with it. And what Jesus does is he says, okay, see these six water pots, 20 or 30 gallons apiece, water pots, six, the number of man. See these water pots for the purification of the people coming to the ceremony, coming to the wedding. What was that? It's hand-washing pots. You've got a wedding filled with drunk people, and now you've got hand-washing pots, and he's going to use those. And he doesn't say, dump the dirty water out. He says, top them off. And then he says this phrase, draw out now. When they draw out, it's the best wine anybody's ever drunk. What is he purposing to do? He's purposing to fill man, mankind, who thinks you're just filled with dirty water because everybody's gotten their hands into you. He's taking and turning what you think is worthless inside of you into the greatest new wine that's ever been. That's how he does it. Awesome, love that. That's just an extra. Okay, back to Psalm 23. Let me see if you remember. You begin in... Okay, But now you walk beside still waters. Now, from that posture of rest, you're empowered to release peace everywhere you go. That's the deal. A posture that begins in rest does not walk in strife, does not walk in stress, does not walk in in striving. Nothing you ever get from God ultimately will come through striving. It always comes through surrender. A lot of times people will say, but you don't know me. I'm like pressed in, and i I sweated, and i oh. And and then I'd say, well, how did that work out? Uh, Man, I just finally came to the end of myself. It's like I had nothing left. And then the breakthrough came. So you know that little spot between you kind of came to the end of yourself and the breakthrough came? That little spot right there is called rest. And if you start there, you'll actually save a lot of time. (laughs) That's surrender, right? You, when you begin in rest, then you're empowered to walk and release peace everywhere you go. The wind and the waves just still, why? There, it's, the peace becomes a byproduct of a life of surrendering to rest. So begin with rest, and next step is you walk in peace. Everybody say peace. peace. So let's go through this. Begin in. Rest. You walk in. Peace. Next part it says that he restores my soul. Now, the soul is often defined and very simplistically defined as the mind, the will, and the emotions. Way, way, way more than that. But for the sake of time, we're just going to keep it at that definition. Understand that if our mind and our will and our emotions come into a place of restoration, it's because he's done it. He's taken us through a journey and a process where he is, understand, this is why I call this the finished walk of the finished work. You'll notice a pattern as we go through here. He makes, he leads, he guides, he restores, he, 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 he. Who's doing all the work here? He is. What are you doing? You're just along for the ride. You're not a passive uh, uh, observer. You're an active participant, but he's the one that's doing the work. And he empowers you to do everything he's doing so that you never burn out. That's why I say you only burn out when you're the fuel. That's a good one to write down. That'll tweet. That's a good word right there. So we begin in rest, you walk in peace, and then the next thing is your mind, your will, and your emotions are restored. Everybody say restored. Restored. How did you get restored? Because you began in? And from that posture and rest, you walk in? And in that peace, you discover that your mind is renewed, You're now thinking the thoughts of God. Why? Because you started with a posture of rest. You're walking in peace. You're creating your own weather system around you. You're shifting the atmosphere around you because the atmosphere in you has begun in rest and walked in peace from a position of being surrendered to the good shepherd. Now my mind is restored. My mind is renewed. I'm thinking clearly. My will is restored. I'm starting to make choices out of alignment that comes from a posture of surrender. I'm watching what he's doing and I'm doing that. If he's sleeping in the middle of the storm, it's exactly what I'm going to do. My emotions are restored. Understand that Jesus had emotions. He felt deeply. When he goes to Lazarus' funeral, it's crazy. You know, he's never late, but he's never early either, and that always bugs me. It's like he's four days late to a funeral, but nothing's going to happen until he gets there anyway. And when he shows up, he knows what he's about to do. And he knows what he can do. But he's actually stuck away from the funeral, stuck long enough to let Lazarus decompose to the point where nobody thinks he can come back. It's past that three-day mark. And now he shows up and he sees their pain and it says he wept with them. He's about to bring the answer, what is he doing stepping into their sorrow. This is the beauty of the love of Christ, is that he steps into our story with us. It's almost like he lives this thing with us and empathizes with us in every moment of pain, blindness, and darkness to bring us out to a redemptive conclusion. It would seem like the better thing would be to keep us from pain. Paul says it like this. And he knew suffering. I reckon the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. God has such a value for the redemptive ability of his glory to erase every second of pain that you've ever tasted, felt, or experienced in your life. And he knows that for some reason within the context of this world that there are things that experiences will teach you, root out of you, that I mean, he could just zap you and just pull you out of a system or, 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 or a problem. Or, but instead, he steps into it with us and then walks us out to a redemptive conclusion. Why? Because, because he wants to dance with you. The story of the prodigal son details this prodigal son comes to his father and says, I wish you were dead. I know that's not what it says in the story, but that's what you're saying when you ask an alive person for the inheritance that you're only supposed to get when they die. I want my inheritance now. Essentially, I wish you were dead. And Jesus, in the story, has the father go ahead and give him exactly what he's asking for, no condemnation. And the son goes out and wastes it, completely wastes it. When he finally comes to the end of himself, a place of total surrender, the only identity that he can think of for himself is to be a servant in the house. The best I can hope for is to be a servant. So he has his repentance speech all prepared, and he's walking the long walk home. The Bible never says that the father is wailing and weeping and freaking out. The The son's blindness never drew the father, according to Jesus' perspective in this, never drew the father into any kind of a partnership with doubt or fear or unbelief or judgment or ridicule or condemnation. The father had one posture, watching, because he absolutely knew that that hog pen is going to teach that kid something that's going to bring him to a place that the father's always wanted these kids to be, but they've never been before. And so what happens is when he comes up over the hill, the son doesn't even get the repentance speech out of his mouth, before the father's posture is immediately to fall on him, restore him to royalty, restore him to authority, restore him to that rightful place as a son and say, strike up the band. Let's get the party started. We're doing a barbecue and I'm dancing with my son. Why? Because the father has always had one thing in mind and that is to dance with his son. That's it. And somehow, When the father sees the son say, I want my inheritance now, he has enough faith and enough trust in the process that this son is about to go through to know that the redemptive conclusion of this is we will dance. Now here's the sad part of the story and the picture of the true prodigal in the story. It's not the first son, it's the second son. And the second son is standing outside of the house and he calls the father out. You come out and you talk to me on my terms. I've worked for you. I've done everything right. You've never done this for me. And the father's revelation to that son is this. Everything I have is available to you. Everything has always been available to you. This dance has always been available to you. And the strange and scary part of the story is that the son that does it all right in his own eyes and never falters a single day and works so hard to be the best that he can be, is the only one in the story that doesn't dance with the Father. I don't know what all the reasons for the pain that you've experienced in your life, but I can tell you this, you're sitting in this room right now. Whatever your journey has happened, has happened in your journey, it's brought you to this moment right now. And I'm just here today to tell you that the Father wants to dance with you. And whatever that journey taught you that brought your heart to a place where you're willing to say, strike up the music, let the party start, Papa, I'm home, your journey is beautiful. And I can tell you this much, that eternity will bring about a redemption that will cause every moment of your journey to be redeemed, every single moment of it. It's a little rabbit trail, but I felt like that was for somebody in here today just needed to know that. Mind, will, and emotions restored. Mm-hmm. Guys, remember the story of Hosea? What time's my plane? Okay. Guys, remember the story of Hosea? Crazy story. i never rabbit trail this much, but I just, we're just kind of going off today. Here we go. Hosea, let's say Hosea is in our church. Van comes up to us and says, Hey, God gave me a word. I'm supposed to marry this hooker, and she's going to keep hooking. <sighs> We're going to have some kids. I guess I'm going to be depressed because I'm going to name them some really, really horrible names. And, uh, uh, phew, man, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, this is what I've gotten from God. There isn't a pastor alive that would go, Oh, yeah, you heard from the Lord. No, nobody would say that. But it was true. Hosea got a legit word from God. To that effect, what is God doing with Hosea? God is trying to produce in Hosea a revelation of his heart. A revelation of his heart that absolutely doesn't give up upon the harlotry of his people. It doesn't let the harlotry of his people determine how he sees them. He's telling us that the strength of the covenant is not determined by the, the weakness of the weaker party, but it's kept by the strength of the stronger And finally, at a certain point, Hosea goes and buys her back. (laughs) And at that point, he says, you'll not go out again. That's not a statement of demand, because if he could have demanded it, he would have done it earlier, but he doesn't. When he says, you'll not go out again, he's finally realized that now you know. Prior, you didn't know. You didn't know what I see when I look at you. You didn't know who I believe in when I see you. You didn't know my love for you, but now you know. And now that you've got a revelation of how loved you are, I got this much confidence. You'll never go out again. And Hosea, last part of chapter two and the last part of chapter three, Hosea gives, as a result of his journey through this process that's now shaped his heart, gives two last days prophetic declarations that the church never talks about. Want to hear them? Yeah. In the last days, last part of Hosea 2 and last part of Hosea 7, the two parts where he mentions the last days. Here, here they are, and this is what they sound like when they're together. In the last days, I will pour out compassion on those who have not earned it. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will respond and say, you are my God. Hosea 3.5 says, and a nation will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. Now think about that. We haven't seen that yet, by the way. So by the way, September 23rd, today, end of the world day, right? This is like the ninth end of the world that I've gone through, right? (laughs) Okay. Here's a promise that Hosea gives. There's coming a day an entire nation will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness. We all know what it's like to tremble in fear, a judgment, pain, punishment, torment. Anybody know what it's like to tremble at a revelation of goodness? And not trembling that makes us cower in fear and run away, but trembling that makes us want to get closer. <laughs> wow. And such a revelation of goodness that it actually affects entire nations. We've never seen that, but there is coming a day where an outpouring of goodness will actually cause entire nations to go weak in the knees coming to the presence of the Lord. Just let that melt your brain. We're past all that. Listen, I grew up in the late great planet Earth era. We thought, I got the book, Jesus, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. It made sense at the time. Because Israel became a nation in 1948, a Jewish generation's 40 years. 88, you do the math, it makes sense. We're rocketing up toward the end of the millennium. America and Russia, Reagan and Gorbachev going head to head, nuclear arms are being built up. 88 was the deal, man. October, September of 1988. Man, that was the time. People were selling houses, standing on the hilltops, waiting for the tractor beam. I remember this. Well, that didn't happen. Then Y2K. Remember Y2K? Anybody still got canned goods from Y2K days? Anybody want to admit that you buried, you know? Anyway. Listen, we've gone through all the late great planet Earths, the 88 Reasons, the Y2Ks, the Blood Moons, the shemitas, and the Harbingers, and we have nothing in our future that, that can, we can use as a fear-mongering tactic to try to get people to come to Jesus on the basis of fear. It's got to be love and goodness, you guys. We've, we've gone past all the sign points. just say this because i got a plane that I'm jumping on right after this, so here we go. Fear sells books and fills altars, but it creates powerless people who name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but don't have the power to walk in because they didn't come to a relationship with the one who is loved that casts out fear. There's two kinds of fear in the Bible. Psalm 111, people always quote this at me, Bill, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Gotta have the fear of the Lord. I said, which kind of fear are you talking about? So there's two Hebrew words for fear that are translated as the English word fear. One of them is the word pachad. Pachad is a fear whose objects are imagined. It's off in the future. Hasn't happened yet, but you're afraid it might. So you've got to imagine worst-case scenario and then prepare for that. It's, it's like a fear of punishment. And most Christians can't tell the difference between the fear of the Lord and the fear of punishment. That's pachad fear. That's not Psalm 111. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is the word yurah. Everybody say yurah. Yurah. Just fun to say. And yurah is a present tense encounter. It's happening right now with more glory, authority, honor, power, majesty, might, and wealth than you've ever tasted or experienced in your life. It's like you're walking down the road, no problem, you turn the corner, bam, you have a relationship, you have an encounter with God, present tense encounter that produces a yurah that's the fear of the Lord. Let's turn the verse around and make it more clear. A present tense encounter with the glory of God is the beginning of wisdom. The birthplace of wisdom. And I guarantee you, most people that come up to me and quote that from a place of fear-mongering, pachad fear, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, are not having a present tense encounter with the glory of God. Why? Because in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. Next time somebody comes up to you sober-faced, long-faced, lower lip, hanging down so far, you could write the Lord's Prayer on it with a mop. <laughs> Angry, ah. Well, you know, we gotta have the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Are you having an encounter with God? If you are, you should notify your countenance because in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. A lot of picard has woven its way into what we call the gospel. That just felt good to say. Mm-hmm. All right, back to Psalms. Here we go. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Whew. clears throat> he restores my soul. Next part, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's go through this. We begin in rest, we walk in peace, mind, will, and emotions are restored. Those are the three words, all right? So we begin in, walk in, <laughs> mind, will, and emotions are now, from that place, says, he restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, listen to this. We think righteousness is things we do to impress God. No. Righteousness has nothing to do with what you do. Righteousness is purely the byproduct of a surrendered life. Righteousness is not what you do. It's who he is. And when he came and took up residence in you, he brought his righteousness with him. That is why you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You carry his identity. So now you're not trying to impress God with all of your works. Righteousness purely becomes a byproduct of a surrendered life. A life that began in and is walking in and your mind, will, and emotions are. And now righteousness is just a byproduct and this is your word. Surrender. Righteousness is the byproduct of? Yeah, from that place, you are equipped and empowered to give grace away freely. Mm-hmm. It's good so far, so let's go to the next part. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Why in the, I, I'm not supposed to go through the valley of the shadow of death. I signed up for this timeshare to stay out of the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> what am I doing in the valley of the shadow of death? This is the parts of your journey that oftentimes become some of the most powerful moments of your testimony. It's not that he authors those. Whatever the devil tries to produce in your life to create destruction, God has a way of coming about and bringing redemption. That's the beauty of the nature of redemption. <clears throat> he leads you or walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you can get the revelation that death is nothing but a shadow. <laughs> Somebody got it. <laughs> it's what happens. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I can't be brought into partnership with the spirit of fear. Why? You're right there with me. You haven't left me alone for a second. I thought I was forsaken. I thought I was alone, but you didn't turn your back on me. Not even this valley of the shadow can separate me from you. I will fear no evil. You are with me. Next part, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What kind of sense is that? Rod, in my house growing up, the rod and the staff did not comfort me. (laughs) Maybe you grew up in the era that I did, but my house, the rod and the staff, man, not comforting, all right? But, now we talked about this last night. The rod and the staff are the judgments of God, and the judgments of God are not against you, they're for you. God be for us, who can't be against us. So, the rod and the staff... The direction, the correction of God is actually there for your protection. It's not to beat you up. It's actually to come against anything that's coming against you. So we said last night, prosperity is the judgment of God against poverty when the thief comes to try to steal and kill and destroy. Uh, Healing is the judgment of God against the, the injustice of infirmity, a spirit of infirmity that comes and tries to take away your ability to live and move and have your being in this world. All of these things are God executing righteousness and justice for you who are oppressed. So the judgments of God are actually for you and not against you. So you begin in, you walk in, your mind and will and emotions are? Righteousness is the byproduct of? You remember, that's awesome. In the valley of the shadow of death. Now here's what I want you to say. This phrase, no fear. Ready, say it. In the valley of the shadow of death, there is. That's it. And the judgments of God, and here's the phrase, are for you, not against you. The judgments of God are for For you. you. That's right. So let's do this all together. We begin in, walk in, mind, will, and emotions are. Righteousness is the byproduct of. In the valley of the shadow, there is. And the judgments of God are. It's the finished walk righteousness, judgment for all oppressed, love that. Next part, prepare a table before me in the presence of my, yeah, we don't like that one, hey, God, there's an enemy right there, and he wants me dead, you're supposed to be building a wall, why are you cooking dinner, that's not a political statement, by the way, okay, (laughs) Why are you cooking? What are you doing setting a table? I mean, you're, you're postured for a fight and God's like sauteing. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing? Why is he preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies? First thing, nobody can be your enemy without your permission. When Jesus tells the Jews, love your enemies, <laughs> he's not talking to a Western superpower with the largest nuclear arsenal on earth. He's talking to a genuinely oppressed people who are being systematically executed by, by a, a, an occupying authority. They're surrounded by people with swords and spears on all sides, surrounded by their enemies. They're having to live with their enemies. And Jesus looks at this group of oppressed people and says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. He's not telling them to be pacifist and let the world run over them. I think he's trying to reveal to them that the most powerful weapon that you ever carry will never be the one that you have in your hand. It's the one that you carry in your heart. So why is he preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies? Perhaps so that you can invite that person that thinks they're your enemy to a table and at that place of that table, you become a living invitation to that person to discover their true identity. Identity as a person made the image and likeness of God, and in the process, that enemy discovers that he's actually your brother. You got two choices with enemies. You can destroy them, or you can turn your adversary into your advocate. And this is the way things work with God. The ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, that God, in Christ, not counting our trespasses against us, reconciled us to him to himself, and now has committed to you and I the exact same ministry of reconciliation. Now how did he accomplish a ministry of reconciliation? By not counting our trespasses against us. That's why I say that nobody can be your enemy without your permission. What if you looked at every person, you refused to allow any trespass, any sin, any offense, any, anything that they ever did to be put into an account against them? Peter underwent a radical transformation in Acts chapter 10. I won't get into this too, too deeply, but let me just touch on this. Peter, all the way up through Acts chapter 10, is a bona fide racist, which is fascinating because Jesus leaves Peter in charge, which tells us that Jesus has enough faith in the process that Peter's about to go through that he's going to undergo a transformation in his life that he can entrust him with authority even though he still has issues, which ought to give every single person in here tremendous hope. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter is standing on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner, a guy named uh, Cornelius. A Roman centurion, the enemy that Jesus was talking about that we were supposed to love, Cornelius has gotten a vision from God that he is supposed to call for Peter to come to, to his house. Peter gets this vision from God on the roof of, of basically a play that happens where, where all of this unclean stuff comes down in a bed sheet and it happens three times. It's like God is saying, Peter, arise, kill and eat. There's bacon in this thing, you know, and... Seriously, it's bacon. 2,000 years from now, people are going to put this in everything, even ice cream. It's going to be awesome, right? And Peter goes, Peter hears a word from God. He knows who's speaking, and here's what he says. No, Lord. What is God doing? He's confronting Peter with a choice between his voice and his tradition, at which confrontation is always happening to us, by the way. Voice of God versus the tradition, Right? And in that moment, Peter, leader of the church, says, no, Lord, I'm going to actively, actively reject the voice of God in favor of my tradition. Now, God teaches him a valuable lesson, and Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he makes this statement to this group of people that he was prejudiced against. It's not even lawful for me to be in here with you. But God has shown me, and this is the phrase he uses, that I am to call no man unholy or unclean. This is the revelation. Now he gets it. Now he sees it. Are you? Now you walked with Jesus for three years. You were in the upper room in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, and just now you're getting that. Finally, it clicks with Peter, and that is this: I'm not allowed to look at anybody and say they're unholy or unclean. Well, if I can't call somebody unholy or unclean, what's the opposite of that? All I can do is see holy and clean everywhere I go. That's the ministry of reconciliation, is that you and I do not have the right anymore to count people's trespasses against them. I know, that makes. I love that I just said that because it makes some of you so uncomfortable. If you catch what I just said, it will absolutely liberate you because you're thinking, wait, I should retain the right to judgment and punishment. I'm a Christian. I am a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. I'm peculiar, and I get to sit in a seat of judgment over everybody. (laughs) And Peter, the most abrasive member of the apostles, says, you know, I got this revelation. I'm not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean. What a life-altering perspective shift. I know what you're doing right now is you're thinking about people outside of yourself. Do you understand that you're included in that anybody? you are the hardest person to forgive. And the deal is this, next time you look in the mirror, you cannot think, speak, or say anything that would label you as unholy or unclean. And when you can begin to see yourself as that radically forgiven, then you can freely give as you freely received. But it begins with you. As offensive as that is, if you catch what I just said, it'd change your life. Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So now, if we begin in, walk in, mind, will, and emotions are? Righteousness becomes the byproduct of? In the valley of the shadow there is? The judgments of God are? And? Your enemies are becoming your friends. And this is the word, friends. This is the most, I think this is probably the most uncomfortable. This is the part where everybody just kind of goes. Because <sighs> it's been your safety net to draw a massive boundary line around you between you and anybody who would bring pain into your life. But understand this. The only reason that anybody ever aligns himself with sin, darkness, or something that's destructive is because they've forgotten who they are. And you and I are to be a living invitation to every person to come into alignment with who the Father believes them to be. You are a living invitation to break demonic influence off the lives of other people. You thought that this whole seminar and this whole conference was just about breaking demonic influence off of you. You are free to set others free. And if your freedom exists for you alone, you've missed 50% 50% of the point of this. You walk out of this and you experience freedom, but you're unwilling to give it away. Then you're like that servant that goes to the master and says, oh, I'm in so much debt. Please, please give, me a, give me a chance. And the master goes, sure. I'll forgive it. And then that servant goes out and grabs one of his fellow servants by the throat who owes him just a little and says, pay me everything you owe. I'm going to cast you into tormentors. To complete the entire thing, freely you've received and freely give, then you've got to realize, listen, I've been freed. I've been like, I understand the concept of being released from demonic influence. I know how to walk in freedom. I know how to partner with the angelic realm, but I don't do this for myself alone. I have been given a ministry of reconciliation where every other person in bondage, even the people that I call my enemies, are supposed to now become friends. Because nobody can be your enemy without your permission. Next part. I'm gonna go through this really fast. You anoint my head with oil. That ritual only belonged to people called priests. That's your word. You are unto God a what? But you're not just a priest. The next part is my cup runneth over. It means unlimited provision. It's almost like a passive provision to where you can't, you, you, you can't keep up with the overflow that's coming into your life that kind of provision only belonged to kings. That's your word. Everybody say kings. kings. So to, to God, when your head's anointed with oil, you are a? Kings. And your cup flow, overflows, so you are a? Kings. Yeah, according to revelation that you have been created to be kings and priests unto God. That's who you are. Priest means one who has direct access to God. King is one who carries the authority of the headship that has appointed you to be A king as well. He's given royalty away to you. It's called a grant covenant. Another teaching for another time, but it's who you are. You carry both priestly authority and kingly authority. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Next part, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I said this last night, This angelic assignment over your life called goodness and mercy, like the wake of a boat that completely upends the way you used to do life where destruction and loss were just awake in your life. You're just like, ah, everywhere I go is loss and destruction, loss and, I just mess everything up. And maybe that's been your reputation before, but no longer. Why? Because you're learning how to walk in the finished work. And the last part, and this is my favorite part of all, after surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. A Messianic Jewish rabbi said to me one time, you understand that's a really weak translation in English? He says, if you read that in Hebrew, it actually reads like this, and I will be the dwelling place of the Lord forever. Which makes perfect sense when you read John fourteen twenty, where Jesus says, in that day, speaking of when the resurrection has happened and the Holy Spirit is coming upon the church, which means that day is right now, in that day, you will know, you will have access to this revelation, he says, that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. David could not have possibly understood in his day the revelation of union with God. He could understand a worship of of, of intimacy with God in a a sense that he could worship God and not be ashamed of it. He could be recklessly and wildly abandoned in worship to God but could not have understood in his day a revelation that God would actually come and take up residence in David as if David was the mansion that God had chosen to build for himself to live in. And that's how he sees you that ultimately the finished walk of the finished work produces in you and I a revelation that you have been created to be the mansion or the home that God is choosing to eternally reside in. That is why you are alive, to be the home for the presence of God. say, so, well, the Bible says he won't give his glory to another. That's true, and that would apply to you if you're another, but you're not. You're in Christ. When Jesus, the glorious one, came and took up residence in you, he didn't leave his glory outside. He brought it with him into you, which means you are glorious. You can't help it. You're stuck with it. Deal with it. Be glorious. <laughs> Ephesians chapter three in verse 21 and 22 goes like this. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. Ephesians 3 21 and 22. Now, to him, Paul says, who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask, that's beyond the reach of everything that you have the intelligence to pray for. He wants to go beyond your wildest prayer or think, that's beyond your wildest imagination. Paul says that the intention of God is to actually go beyond your craziest prayer and your wildest imagination. To him who's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or think, he's not doing it outside of you, says, according to the power that works in you. This is God in Christ revealing to Paul by the Holy Spirit, it is my intention to blow your mind from the inside out. I'm going to go beyond you, but I'm going to do it from within you. And what is he doing? He's breaking off all the lies, labels and limitations that have ever been placed upon you. You got to see this for what it is. This make you truly happy. <laughs> He's looking at you going, I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to go be you you can't outpray me. There's no chance that you can pray a prayer that God goes, "Whoa." Okay? Hang on a second now. Back that up. All right? You've like way overestimated my ability here, all right? He wants to outdo your craziest prayer and he wants to overshoot your wildest imagination, according to the power at work in you, here's the phrase, ready? To him be glory, are you reading it? In the church. What? Yes, to him be glory in the church. That glory empowers you, empowers you to walk out this finished work. See, here's the deal. The finished walk of the finished work. You begin and rest, walk in peace. Mind, will, and emotions are restored. Righteousness becomes a byproduct of a surrendered life. In the, in the middle of the valley, there's no fear. Judgments of God are for me, not against me. My friends are becoming my enemies. I'm a priest and a king unto God, and I'm the dwelling place of God forever. Where does that take me? Into the fullness of this revelation, and that is the one that we don't understand from the New Testament. We're still trying to wrap our mind around, and that is that. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can you be more than a conqueror? If I've conquered, I can't get any beyond that. I mean, it's like, I've won. What can I do beyond that? Being more than a conqueror is like, anybody, anybody watched the, the big boxing match the other night? Anybody want to admit that they did? <laughs> Conor McGregor and... Floyd Mayweather. Mayweather. 300 million dollars. Connor got $100 million for losing, I'd take a right hook from Floyd Mayweather for $100 million. Hey, look, at, even if it took me six months to eat solid food again, that's $100 million, all right? Maybe I can't spell my name afterwards, but come on, you know? <laughs> i compromise a couple of brain cells for $100 million. My goodness. It's amazing. Okay, so here's the deal. Floyd Mayweather is in the ring, and he goes 10 rounds with Conor McGregor before he knocks him out by a TKO. He's getting beat like mad crazy, right? They're, they're beating each other up. Their bloody faces all puffy. It's going to take him a while to recover from this bout. Floyd Mayweather gets done with the fight. They raise his hand in victory and hand him a check for $300 million. Floyd Mayweather is a conqueror. Then his wife steps in the ring, and he hands her the check. She is more than a conqueror. Yeah, you got it. How did that happen? This is the way it works. Because of covenant, she reaps the full benefits of a fight that she never had to fight. She never broke a nail, messed up her makeup, her hair is fine, and she reaps the full benefits, and she never even swung a punch. And that's the deal. That's why the Bible says that we are more than conquerors through Christ, who loved us in his love took all the punches, swung all the punches, absorbed in himself all of the wrath of humanity, all of the wrath of God. And there's no more wrath left to be poured out. Why? Because he's taken it all upon himself. He's taken all your shame so that you never have to feel any, any shame ever again. You never have to be ashamed in the sight of God. Why? Because he's absorbed it into himself. He's taken all the judgment into himself. In John chapter 12, ah, John chapter 12, there's this great verse. It says, says uh, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. It's John 12, I think 34, 35, somewhere in there. Anybody remember that verse? We've made songs about it. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. The word men is actually, and you look in your Bible, you'll see it's italicized. It's not actually in the original. The word men isn't in there. Translators added the word men to try to make sense of the verse, and they told you that they did. That's why they italicized the word in your King James. If I be lifted up from the earth, that will draw all men unto me. Let's try to hopefully make clarity out of it. But they're telling you, oh, by the way, this isn't in the original. Let's take the word out and read it in context. The verse before it goes like this. Now judgment has come into the world. Now the ruler of this world is judged. But if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all unto myself. In context, he's not talking about people, even though he wants to draw, true. But what he's talking about in that verse is judgment. Judgment is coming to the world. The ruler of this world is judged. But if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all judgment into myself. Now we get make sense out of the verse right before John three sixteen and John three fourteen, where Jesus says, "As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just like that, must the Son of Man be lifted up? That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life." And the story he's talking about is back in the Old Testament when Israel's grumbling and complaining, and snakes just appear and start biting people, and they're dying. And Moses goes, God, these people are dying under the weight of judgment, what do I do? And God says something that makes no sense at all. Take a brass serpent, put it on a pole, stick it in the middle of the camp, and anybody who looks at it will be healed. Now think about that. I'd be like, wait a minute, okay, time out. Should we do a class on why that works, or how do they have to look at it? Do they have to to like it? Do they have to like re see? No, no. They just have to see it. Moses, all they have to do is see it. Really? That's it. Yeah, don't make this complicated, Moses. If they just see, they'll be healed. People are dying from snake bite. They don't even know why the serpent's up on the pole. They don't have a way to, there's no mass email that went out across the camp. They have no idea what's going on. Moses just sticks it out there, and these people just look up and they glance, and what ends up happening? The venom from the snake bite that's killing them from the inside out, sucked up onto that serpent, and suddenly they're standing there healed. Have no idea reason why. What's just happened right now? What did you do? I looked over at that. Person after person after person is healed. The nation is saved. When Jesus goes to describe what he's about to do on the cross, he says, That is me. What's the thing that's killing you from the inside out? Judgment, punishment, guilt, and shame, the fruit of the fall. And when you see him for who he truly is, all that judgment that's killing you from the inside out, sh- up onto that cross. And now, all the poison the poison of self-hatred, the poison of unforgiveness, the poison of bitterness and sin and darkness and blindness and demonic oppression, suddenly, shoo, and now you're left standing there totally healed, have no idea what happened, how did this happen, what did, I just, I don't know, I just looked at him. You want to be healed? See, look, see him. Look, you want, you want to be free? See him. You want to know who you are? See him. You want to get free from the guilt and shame? See him. Because every time you see him, you get a revelation of who you are because you're made in his image and likeness. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because ultimately, the culmination of this entire event of freedom is that you and I get to learn how to walk in this thing not just a one-time event just for you. It's given to you to give away, and you get to learn how to walk this thing out. It becomes daily, so every single day, you get up and you go, God, I just surrender to the rest of your presence. I have purpose to walk in your peace, releasing peace. God, I just know that you right now are restoring my mind and my will and my emotions. Some of you are going like, to realize you're going to save so much money on counseling. My mind, my will, and my emotions are restored. Whoa, righteousness is the byproduct of just a life of surrender. I just, I'm, just, I'm, I'm acting righteous because I'm surrendering to just do what you're doing. And I can't take any credit for this. And, and here I am in the valley of the shadow, but there's no partnership with fear. Why? Because you're right here with me. Death is nothing but a shadow. So just as I walked in, I walk out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Your judgments are for me, not against me, because you took all of my shame, my guilt on the cross, and now you're for me. Look at my enemies, my adversaries around me are now becoming my advocates and their hearts are being turned towards me and I'm positioned to be a living invitation for this world to change their mind about who you are and see themselves as made the image and likeness of God. I walk in royalty and priesthood and I realize I'm the dwelling place of your presence forever. And that's how you walk in freedom, consistently, all the days of your life into eternity. Stand with me. Father, I pray that today there be a release of supernatural freedom over this room. God, that from this point on, that Psalm 23 would become a roadmap of the finished work. And I I recognize there's people all over this room that are on various places in that roadmap, some of them many times throughout the day. Those of you who have been living in the valley of the shadow, can I tell you that you're stepping out of it? You're stepping out of it. Most encouraging number in the entire Bible is the number 41. Did you know that? There's tons of 40s in the Bible. 40 days and nights it rains in the ark. Noah comes to, or Jonah comes to Nineveh and says, 40 days Nineveh be overthrown. Moses is on the backside of the desert for 40 years before he sees a burning bush that alters his destiny. Israel's in the wilderness for 40 years before they step into the promised land. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights before he walks out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Goliath taunts Israel for 40 days before David steps up and kills the giant. Everybody knows about the 40s. You know what nobody ever hears about? The forty-one. Because 41 is the number that represents the time when grace is released over Nineveh. People walk into the promised land. A person's destiny is restored. You walk out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, all, all the giants end up falling in your, in, in your world on 41. That's the deal. And some of you right now, you came to this conference because you're in a 40. You didn't know why you were here, but you're in a 40. But can I tell you that your 41 is on its way? Yeah. Yeah. How many of you you know what I'm talking about? You've been in a 40 lately. Yeah, some of you? Keep your hands up. Wow, look, see, you're not alone. 40 can make you feel isolated, but your 41 will come. Your 41 will come. Stretch out your hands to the Lord today. Father, I pray right now for just the divine, overwhelming sense of victory. God, that every person in here who's walking through a season of 40, God, would begin to see beyond the calendar of the moment that they're standing in, out of the valley of the shadow, and that they would just see the 41 that's ahead of them, that moment in your life. I declare in your life that you're stepping into your promise. I declare that grace is coming to you in radical ways. I declare that you're walking out of the wilderness and the power of the Holy Spirit and that every giant standing before you is about to fall. That's what it means to walk in freedom. So Lord, let it be that no matter how many steps we have to take through this 40, that we know our 41 will come. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory, your grace, and your freedom. I'd invite our worship team to come back up to the front. I know this is kind of like spur of the moment, but if we got enough of you guys in the room that can come up and make some music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're in the middle of a 40 and you just want to say, God, I, I, today, I want to step into that place of freedom. I, I want to know in my spirit. I want to step in. By faith, I just want to lay hold of that 41. This may be your first walk in the finished work, consciously where you're saying, from this point on, I recognize that I'm stepping into a revelation of the finished work of the cross. I invite you to step out and come and worship with these guys this morning and let this moment of worship, this time of worship be a time where you step into the freedom that God's appointed for you. No more judgment, no more fear, no more guilt, no more shame. That all ends today. No more looking in the mirror and calling yourself unholy or unclean. That ends today. Yeah, wow. Okay, this is not an altar service where I'm going to come and lay hands on you. This is an altar service where you're going to get alone with the Lord, spend some time, and have some intimacy with God. And in that place, I want you just to just to take some time and just worship into this. Begin just for a few moments today to develop in this moment of worship a lifestyle that you're going to carry away from this altar To where whenever you encounter darkness, you're absolutely empowered to overcome it. That you know who lives in you and what he's qualified you and gifted you to do. And that you now have the freedom to step into that destiny. That you now have the freedom. Hear what I just said. You have the freedom to step into that destiny. Thank you, Jesus. Close your eyes with me for just a second. I want you to see Jesus in front of you. No place where you can't imagine him to be. He's everywhere, so it's totally legal to picture him with you. I want you to see Jesus in front of you. Just let yourself see him. I want you to see his countenance and his face, the kindness and the love in his eyes as he looks at you as if you're the only one. He's not turning away from you to look at someone else, he's looking right at you. I want you to notice his open hands. As he reaches out to you to take you by the hand and invite you on a journey with him I want you to just let that childlike imagination take you somewhere let him show you some things today some of you he's going to speak some words let him speak to you today some of you he's going to unveil something before you tell you something about yourself that he thinks about you maybe you've never thought about yourself Some of you are like, I don't understand How How does this work? Isn't this just my imagination? God wants to awaken to a revelation Of that childlike wonder That draws you into a place of knowing How loved you are by a good father Thank you Jesus For your grace Let's worship together